Well, last week I, I made the point that genuine Christians did not become genuine Christians by following a code or a list of instructions. Rather, genuine Christians are those who have heard, believed, and responded appropriately to the news of Jesus. Jesus is the source of eternal life, the mediator through whom we have fellowship with God and the only source of complete joy. That fellowship with God, fellowship with our Creator, and the joy that that brings, that's John's heart here. That's what he wants us to know and experience and and be sure of. And so today we're going to get into more details about uh, the specific proclamation that John tells us that he saw and heard. Remember the last week in the first couple of verses, John is stressing the fact that, that the message that he's proclaiming is, a, is something that he has seen and heard and touched and experienced. And, and, and he's a, an eyewitness of these things. And, and he, it's such an important message that he wants to get to, to, to all people. And he wants us to hear it and appreciate the message. And so today we're going to look at that message, that proclamation. What is, is it that John has seen and heard and he so desperately wants to share with us today? Well, we read it, read it here, beginning in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, where it says, This... This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. When I was a a youth minister back in the 90s, uh, the church that I served in that capacity would occasionally take trips with the young people to New York City. And one of the things that some of the youth were excited about was to get a Rolex for $10, which you can do in New York City. Of course, uh, it's not a genuine Rolex, but hey, it looked like one and had all the right markings and probably was illegal. But uh, it wasn't the genuine article, was it? I mean, you can't get a Rolex for $10. Uh, we want to have the genuine article, and that's what we're concerned about in this series. Being a genuine believer, what does a, a genuine Christian look like? We, we often... Uh, see around us, especially in the South with cultural Christianity still hanging on, uh, sometimes people are deceiving themselves about their Christianity. They think they're okay when really they're not. And I don't want anyone to not know the genuine article. What is a genuine Christian? And today 
as we delve into these verses before us, we're going to find out three things that genuine Christians apprehend. And I use that word apprehend uh, specifically because it's something that we not just comprehend, and comprehend means you understand it, but it's something that we have grasped. We've understood it with our minds, but we've also grasped it into our lives. We have appropriated these truths. And I've got these three things that, that John is stressing to us today. First, genuine Christians apprehend God's holiness. Secondly, genuine Christians apprehend humans' sinfulness. And then thirdly, genuine Christians apprehend Christ's provision. Well, first we see here John uh, beginning to uh, his proclamation with the fact that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And he's talking about God's holiness here. Now, we're not going to apprehend it perfectly or completely. Let me put a disclaimer on that because there's no way that we can fully comprehend or apprehend God because he's beyond uh, our knowing. He has revealed himself to us, certainly, and, and we can know him and have a relationship with him, but, but one day we will see him face to face and then we will be blown away uh, because we will see how little we actually uh, apprehended about God. But we must to some degree understand what John is saying here about God, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To be a genuine Christian, you need to understand this to some degree. Now notice what a sweeping and emphatic statement that is. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now it's difficult for us, probably impossible, for us to conceive what pure light is like. But, you know, well, it's hard for us because the light we experience is diffused and, and there's shadows and there's darkness. It's filtered. It's filled with shadows. If you think of a light bulb, you know, you know a 100-watt light bulb is a whole lot brighter than a 40-watt light bulb, right? What would a light bulb of unlimited wattage be like? Well, we certainly wouldn't be able to look at it. It would blind us. It's like kind of a picture of what God is. He's pure light. There's no darkness or shadow or filter in him at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, not a shadow, not a shade. Now this, of course, refers to his nature. I mean, God isn't physically light. This is talking about his nature. And in the scriptures, light symbolizes two things generally, uh, knowledge and purity. We can talk about, I, you know, the light has come on, and that means I'm understanding something for the first time. Uh, or, or we can talk about light in the sense of purity, uh, when something is, is light and, and clear and bright and shining forth, it's not, there's no impurities there. So light in Scripture speaks of knowledge and purity. Now in the case of knowledge, when it says that there is no darkness in God at all, that means that nothing is hidden from him. Everything is, is in his light and exposed before him. He has perfect knowledge of everything. 
He is, he is the light. He is the one that shines into the darkness and the darkness is no more. He comes and he sees clearly everything and everyone. And in the case of light symbolizing purity, it means that God has no unrighteousness in him at all. There's no spot or blemish or sin there. He is spiritually and morally perfect. He is sinless, holy, pure. Now we sang earlier, the first hymn, Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Now those lines are based on another text of scripture, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 15 through 16, that describes the Lord as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, Dionysius, an ancient church father, said it well in talking about God being light. He says, God's nature is absolutely pure without any admixture full eternal light and so perfect that it excludes every flaw. No, even more. It is pure light, perfect above everything that is pure light and perfect. That's a wonderful summary statement. So this statement that God is light and in him is no darkness at all has implications for us. In reference to his purity, it implies that God is antithetical to evil. God, uh, God and wickedness are incompatible if he is light and in him is no darkness at all. And the Bible affirms this elsewhere, and I've given you several scriptures here. Habakkuk 1, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Psalm 5, you are, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So in, in light of his purity, no evil can, can be before God in his sight. That's a problem for us, as we'll see in a moment. And then in reference to his perfect knowledge, the implication is that you and I who are sinful cannot hide from God. We are exposed before him, before his light. When we look at God or hold up God before us, before us, we see ourselves as we truly are, as sinners. Calvin and his institutes, John Calvin uh, began those institutes by talking about knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self. As we understand who God is, it helps us to understand who we are. And it's not necessarily a positive thing. Though it is, a, it is a positive thing, it's a good thing to, to have knowledge of God and true knowledge of self because we have to recognize the, the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. And the truth about God that John is pressing to us this morning is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Hebrews 4:13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a sobering statement. So the proclamation that John makes here 
has its starting point with God in his nature. John has stated that he is proclaiming these things to us so we can have fellowship with this God who is light. And, and we can enjoy God who is light and have the fullness of joy. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I got old enough where I'd get up on Saturday morning and my parents would be sleeping in and I'd go and watch Scooby-Doo and the other cartoons and Bugs Bunny and all that. And I would always like to pour me a big glass of chocolate milk and I would fill that thing all the way to the top. You know, and I always spill it everywhere. But I wanted that thing to be full. And that's what it's talking about. Like, the word is fullness of joy, to be completely full of joy. And that's what's, that's what's being promised here. And it's amazing. It's an amazing statement that we can have fellowship with God, this God who is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We who have darkness in us. The Bible says in Isaiah... Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, before we can get to that fellowship and joy, before we can experience that, we have to understand that we have a problem. And we have to apprehend the holiness of God, else we won't appreciate the provision that he has made for sinners like us who have iniquities that have separated us from him. And that brings us to the second point. Genuine Christians apprehend humans' sinfulness. As I said, you and I have a problem. God is light. He is pure. He cannot tolerate even the smallest sin. But every human is a sinner, and God is aware of it. He sees and knows everything. All that you hide from the world, all that you think no one else knows, God knows. He sees even into our hearts. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows even the intentions of our hearts. Now John brings human sinfulness home to us in these five if statements. And I've summed them up for us in these three points. First, claiming to have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness is a lie. And that's what he says here in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. It's impossible to have fellowship with God who is light and walk in darkness at the same time. They're incompatible. They're, they don't work together. And you, you cannot have fellowship with God while you're walking in darkness. But, he says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Be careful with this verse because you can misinterpret that and think that walking in the light is what makes Jesus' blood cleanse us from sin. That's not what this is saying. This is not a statement on how to be right with God, but rather a statement on how you know that you are right with God. How do I know that I'm right with God? How do I know that, I'm, that I have fellowship with God? Well, I'm walking in the light as he is in the light. And the only way that I'm doing that is if Jesus is cleansing me from sin. If the blood of his, Jesus, his son, is cleansing us from sin, then we can walk in the light as he is in the light and enjoy fellowship with him. If we think that we can just go along in our lives sinning without any consequences, we're fooling ourselves. We don't have fellowship with God. We're not enjoying the fellowship with God if we're continuing to, to practice sin. We're lying and we're not practicing the truth. 
That's not true. So claiming to have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness is a lie. Secondly, denying you are a sinner is self-delusion. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, there are a lot of people today who, who are offended when you're, they, they're told that they're sinners. You know, they don't think of themselves as sinners. Well, they're deceiving themselves, the scripture says. If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. The fact of the matter is you are a sinner. Every one of us are sinners. And to deny that is self-delusion. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God's assessment of us, and that is saying, hey, yes, I am a sinner, God. I own it. I confess it. Then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's one of my favorite verses in the scripture. I quote it all the time to you. We have to... We have to agree about what is the reality of our lives and that we're sinners and not deny that fact. And if you want to be a genuine Christian, you've got to come to that realization that, yes, I'm a sinner. Jesus was criticized because he reached out to prostitutes and tax collectors and he said, you know, the, it's the sick who need a doctor. Those who are well don't need the doctor. You know, there are a lot of people who are sick, who think they're well, and so they're not going to the doctor. That's a dangerous place to be. There are a lot of people who are sinners, they deny that they're sinners, and they're not going to Christ for salvation. So you have to come to that place if you want to be a genuine believer of recognizing that you are a sinner and you have a need and a problem. He is faithful and just and is forgiving of us. Finally, thirdly, thirdly and sub-point thirdly, claiming to not be a sinner is a denial of God and his word. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It goes hand in hand with what he's just said. If you're saying that you're not a sinner, it's not, you know, it's not me that you're calling a liar, you're calling God a liar. God's the one that says you're a sinner. And if you say you haven't sinned, then you're, you're calling God a liar and his word is not in you. You don't have the truth. That's not the truth. That's self-deception, self-delusion. So you have to recognize that God is holy and you are not. And you have, that is a problem. But the wonderful news is, thirdly, God has done something about it. A genuine Christian understands those things and, and apprehends the fact that Christ has made provision for sinners such as we are so that we can have fellowship with God who is light in whom dwells no darkness. Verse 1, chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which we all do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now there's three words here that I want to focus in on. Uh, first, that Jesus is an advocate. An advocate. The word there in the Greek is paraclete. And uh, you'll notice, if you have ever done a study of uh, J John 15 through 17, 
where Jesus promises in his last discourse there in the upper room before he goes to the cross, he tells his disciples that there's going to be a, a, a helper, a comforter, uh, who's going to come, the Holy Spirit. And this is the word that he uses there, the paraclete. And that word, it's a compound word. It means, uh, well, para, you know, parallel, uh, alongside of. So para, alongside of, and the word for call. So parakaleo is the word that it comes from. So someone who comes alongside uh, when they're called. So sometimes this word is translated in different ways. Here we have advocate, uh, helper would be appropriate, comforter, counselor, encourager, mediator. And Jesus is all those things for sinners such as we are. We have an advocate. Sinners have an advocate with the Father. And we've sung about him uh, in these couple of, verse, uh, couple of songs. Uh, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My guarantor, my guarantor stands. He's pleading for me. He's advocating for me. He speaks up for me. Forgive him. Forgive him. It's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Isn't that wonderful? Those two hymns are saying exactly the same thing. We have a, a paraclete, just like the Holy Ghost. Christ is interceding for us above, at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is encouraging and helping and comforting us from within for Christ. Their work is inseparable from one another. Christ's advocacy is inseparable from the Holy Spirit's comfort and working in us. So Christ is our advocate. We can come to him. We can come to the, the one who is light through the one who is our advocate. Because he is the righteous one. Jesus Christ the righteous. Our advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. Now it is his righteousness, his obedience to the law, his perfect obedience throughout his life and death on earth and the endurance of the penalty for our breaking the law because he was obedient to pay for that when he went to the cross. That is, his, that is on, on which he grounds his claim for our acquittal. See, because of what he did in his life and death and resurrection, because he was perfectly righteous, he came and did exactly what the Father had asked him to do, to take on human flesh, to live a perfectly obedient life, to fulfill all righteousness, and to ultimately obey the Father's call to go to the cross to die for sinners. He can stand before the throne of God above and he can say, this one has been forgiven through my sacrifice on the cross. This one has been cleansed, and he can come into your presence. He's interceding for us. He's advocating for us because he is the one who is righteous for us. So if we have sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one who is righteous for us. And we should find great comfort in that. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of salvation that we have in Christ. 
So if you are a genuine Christian, you've embraced Christ in his role as our advocate, the righteous one, who has been made the propitiation, that's the third word, the propitiation for our sins. And that's a, that's a big, big theological word there. What in the world is a propitiation? Well, if you're reading from the NIV, uh, probably most of you are not, but that word propitiation is translated sacrifice of atonement, and that's an appropriate uh, translation. But what does atonement mean? That's actually a, a made-up English word. I think when they were translating the Bible, maybe it was Tyndale or one of the early translators of the Bible into English, he created that word. And, he, and, it, and it is at one meant at one meant. And that's where that word comes from, and it did not exist before that in English. At one meant. To make amends for wrongdoing so that oneness is accomplished. Jesus was a sacrifice to, to bring two parties together, sinful human beings and God who is light and in whom is no darkness. Christ is the sacrifice of atonement. So the word propitiation is that atoning sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God on behalf of those for whom it is made. You see, Jesus was sent by the Father to be the atoning sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God on behalf of sinners in our place. He, he was sent there to pay the penalty for our sins, to be that sacrifice that satisfied justice. We deserve to die. We deserved all that, was, that Jesus experienced on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We deserve to be forsaken by God. But it was Jesus, the perfect righteous one, who bore that penalty for us on the cross. And that was his propitiation. Now some people don't like that. Uh, but John Murray explains it thus, and I think this is helpful, and I've given the quote in your outline. He says, Propitiation is, is to make God propitious. It is not to make God loving. See, a lot of people accuse uh, this idea of propitiation of being cosmic child abuse. You know, God uh, is made out to be some ogre, uh, child abuser who takes his son and destroys him for sinners, and they don't like that. But that's what the Bible says, but that's a mischaracterization because God did that not because he was spiteful or mean or capricious, but because he was loving. He, he desires to have fellowship with his, his people. And he has sent Jesus Christ to make that happen. So Jesus satisfied justice on the cross. He was that sacrifice. Propitiation is to make God propitious. It is not to make God loving. We were the objects of his love while we were still the children of wrath. God sent his Son in order that his wrath might be propitiated. The sending of his Son was the provision of his love in order that his love might realize its purpose. Because he loved us so much, he sent Jesus to do this great thing for us, to be a sacrifice for us. Romans 5.8 says it. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So we must apprehend what Christ has done for us and then rest in it. Put our faith in it. Trust in what he's done. And that's what makes someone a genuine Christian. You recognize you have a problem because God's a holy God and you're a sinful human being. 
But God in his great love, his steadfast love that we read, remember from Psalm 36, his steadfast love that endures forever, sent his son into the world to lay down his life so that we could have fellowship with him, eternal fellowship with him, and that our joy might be full. May the Lord help us to to apprehend these truths and to live in light of those truths because sometimes that's the struggle, isn't it? Because we do sin and it breaks our fellowship with the Father. But we know that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, and if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us and we can once again enjoy fellowship with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would have a deeper apprehension of these truths today. Maybe they're not new truths to us, but Lord, I pray that they would take root deeper in our hearts, that we would know it better, we might appreciate it more, and might live in light of these truths, and that would show itself in more holy, to walk in the light as you are in the light. Lord, we pray that, that if anyone is here who, who has never really understood these truths, that as they grasp them, that they would cry out to you and put their faith and trust in you and what Jesus has done for them. And we pray, that, pray this in his name. Amen.